You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. We're going to finish up our series tonight on a kind of point of view, the Christian point of view of a few things, okay? So we've been walking through in this series. We talked about a lot of different things. Tonight, we're going to talk about conflict. So talking about a Christian point of view on conflict, of how we handle conflict and all that stuff. How many of you are uh, anti-conflict? You're non-confrontational. All right. How many of you are like okay with it, but you don't like it? Anybody in here like it? Okay, okay. I, I mean, it's, I feel like it's kind of a dangerous spot to like conflict, you know what I'm saying? Um, the thing is, whether you like it or not, we can't really avoid it. We can't avoid conflict. It's part of living with other people who have a sin nature, okay? We have a sin nature. Everybody else has a sinful nature. So when we live together and we do life around each other, we're going to have conflict at some point in time. You know, I don't think we should try to avoid all conflict either, you know, in the name of living at peace with people, you know, because I think God can use conflict to sanctify us. God can use conflict to sanctify others around us. You know, this uh, verse that people quote often, the iron sharpens iron, okay? Do you think it's fun for the iron to sharpen itself, you know, against other iron? No, it's, it's not easy, you know, and if we, were, if we were that, it would be painful, right? So conflict can be painful sometimes, but it can also be building You know, this whole idea of iron sharpens iron is meant to make each thing better, you know, and build it up. So conflict can be community building. It can be strengthening. When you walk through it together with other people and you do it well and you communicate well with the right heart attitude and a commitment to Christ, it can actually make your relationships better, make them stronger. You know, and there is a healthy way to approach and handle conflict, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I do want to say this, that if, if you like conflict you might want to check your heart a little bit, you know, because it's not that we want to always be doing it. You know, nobody actually always wants to be doing it. And it's not something that we should be looking for an opportunity to stir up. You know, there's proverb, uh, you know, there's a lot of proverbs actually about conflict or about this word strife. Uh, Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Nobody wants to be the fool that is quarreling, and so we shouldn't be looking for ways to stir stuff up, you know. But we should be looking for uh, a way to live at peace with all, even if that pursuit of peace has to go through necessary conflict. Okay, so a little caveat before we jump into all this. This is not going to be so much about disagreement. Okay, we're going to disagree with each other about a lot of different things. We're going to have opinions, opinions that differ from one another about all kinds of various things. Life is full of disagreements on opinion. And often those can lead to sin. They can lead to sinful thinking or a gossip about somebody else. Uh, and then we'd be talking about conflict. But tonight we're talking more about conflict that results from somebody's words or attitudes or actions that go against somebody else and cause a rift in relationship. So a little bit less about disagreement, unless that disagreement leads to sin. And then we're talking about that. So we're going to read James 4, 1 through 12. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Are you guys going to have a seat? So there's a couple main points that we're going to focus on tonight. A couple really simple things, and then we'll come back kind of at the end and have a few application points that are also fairly simple. So we're keeping it more simple tonight than we did the last time uh, we talked about community and we had nine points. Tonight, there's only two. So first thing, conflict begins within. Conflict begins within. You know, I already said that sometimes it's necessary to walk through conflict to get to peace. So I don't want to be confusing and make it out like all conflict is the worst thing that's ever happened. Because sometimes it is necessary to walk through it. And it can actually be entered into intentionally. You may walk into uh, what feels like conflict intentionally for the betterment of somebody to whom you aim to do good or somebody that you want to help walk with Jesus more closely. But conflict is only necessary, even in those instances, because sin exists. So conflict would not exist if sin did not exist, if we did not need to be sanctified, you know, and if we did not sin against one another. And all human conflict arises because we human beings sin. We bring about a lot of our own problems, and we cause problems for other people by our actions and our attitudes and our words. And we look at what, some of what John, James is saying right here in these early verses. You see this question, you know, why do you fight? Why are there fights? Because your passions are at war within you. You know, there's desires within you that are wreaking havoc within. Sinful desires. Desires for things of, of just satisfying yourself, really self-centered things. And in your those, those passions and those desires are at war within you in, in some sense because they're at war within you because you have the spirit within you as a believer and you have these desires in you as a believer and they're in conflict. But even, even for those who are not believers, you have these sort of competing desires within us. We're torn within and it's no wonder that it's leaking out into our external relationships. You know, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, out of the overflow of the heart comes just about everything you do. You know, that's why Proverbs 4, 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Because our heart, out of our heart come a lot of the things that we do and say and attitudes that we have, if not all of the things. So you desire and you don't have, he says, so you murder. You covet what somebody else has, so you fight. And if you sat down, if I sat down and thought about it, a lot of what people have done to wrong us and a lot of what we have done to wrong other people has probably come from a place of unmet desires that led to frustration. 
and jealousy. And, if, you know, if we're being honest and, and we would sit down and go, okay, yeah, I think that's true. And to the point that one person acts out against another person, either in hopes of getting what they want or maybe uh, trying to make somebody else suffer because it seems like they have what you want. And so these things stir up within us. They, they begin within us and they kind of pour out into everything else that's going on in our life. And we can see how James sets this up, actually. So we read 4, 1 through 12. Well, right before that, we have James 3, where he's talking in 13 through 16. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Anytime there's jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, there's going to be disorder in every vile practice. I mean, that sounds serious, right? But it's true, you know, it makes sense that selfishness would lead to relational strife. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone or had a friendship with somebody who is purely selfish, it's hard to get along with them. That's no wonder that if people live selfishly, it's going to be hard to do relationships with them. Or hard for you to do a relationship if you allow your selfish desires to run rampant and sort of control your life. You know, I think that's where the philosophy of our day, the whole do whatever makes you happy, really breaks down. Because if everybody did whatever made them happy, we would all be miserable. And it would, it would be like the breakdown of society. It can't be good for that. But the thing is, like, it all comes so naturally to us. To, to be selfish, to be self-centered, to be uh, concerned about, number one, you know? Because we feel like nobody else is going to look out for us. i got to look out for myself. And who else is going to look out for me if I don't look out for me? You know, the body of Christ, we hope and we look and we say, well, hopefully we are looking out for one another so we don't have to look out for ourselves as much. But it does come so naturally to us, even as Christians, which is why we need so many admonitions in Scripture that tell us, avoid these selfish ambitions. Look out for the interests of other people. Because if we don't, we're going to have a hard time being one body that points to Christ. So, but, you know, knowing God has called us to live this way and living it are two different things. It is not easy to live this way because it comes so naturally to us to do things for ourselves just knowing that we're not supposed to live selfishly doesn't remove that war going on within. And then James goes on and says, you don't have because you don't ask. Too often we don't have because we didn't go to God with our desires. Or we feel like we have desires that are going unmet because we didn't take them to God. We didn't submit those things to God. So we've been living for ourselves and we're unfulfilled because we're not going to God to find our fulfillment. And then there's the real possibility that we go to God with our desires in hopes of having them fulfilled. But the why behind our request is so off-base and so self-centered that he does not give it to us. You know, I think the core thing that we've got to understand about our identity, we've talked about this before in here, is that we are in Christ. That our value and our hope and our peace, our comfort, our joy is, is wrapped up in him, in the relationship with him. We can find him. He's our, he is our foundation and the core of who we are. And when we try to find satisfaction and fulfillment and comfort and peace and joy and all these things outside of Christ, we're not going to find it. It's not out there. Or we find it in little, little tiny increments and we keep trying to uh, lap them up like they're crumbs when really we have a feast in Christ. And we're ignoring that and, and all this stuff. And we're going to God asking for the things. We're asking for the crumbs. Like, God, give me the crumbs rather than like, 
finding our hope and our fulfillment in him. And God knows the attitude of our hearts. He knows the motivation of our hearts when we come to him and ask for things. So we might be asking him for things that God actually wants to give us. But he's not going to give us the thing that we ask for with the motivation that we're bringing. Because if we have made anything into an idol, something that is controlling our life, it has the controlling, uh, our desires are wrapped around this one thing, and we're bringing that to God and saying, God, I'm bringing you my desires. Will you satisfy the desires of my heart? He's going to look and see that you are idolizing the thing itself. And you are looking for identity in the thing rather than in him, and he's not going to give it to you. And you may be able to find whatever it is that you're asking for out there in the world, but I promise you, if you chase after an idol, he is not going to supernaturally enable it or make it easier for you to find. He may allow you to sin, but he's not going to give you the the desires of your heart if it's idolatrous. And so, like, I don't know, this, we read through these things and, and we read this like, hey, you have these desires in your heart and you're asking and you're not receiving because you're wanting to spin it on your passions. And then he says this, you adulterous people. Did you know that idolatry is adultery against God? Idolatry is adultery against God. He, he is our first love. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That God, as a Christian, is supposed to be our first love. And so when you turn away from him to find your identity and your purpose and turn your life's attention toward anything else, you are committing adultery against God. And that's what he's saying, you adulterous people. God loves his bride too much to let us get, just keep going along in idolatry. He's not going to let us just have everything uh, go perfectly if we're living for something other than him. You know, and I remember a few weeks ago we were talking about our bodies and how the Spirit has taken up residence in our bodies as believers. Like, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have a connection to God that he, that he is not going to give up. He's not going to let that go. And I love what 2 Timothy 2.13 says, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's not so much just that he cannot deny us, who he loves, but rather he himself is within us. And he's not going to deny that. So when we have Christ and we have his Holy Spirit, God is not letting us go. And he's not going to let us get on as normal if we're pursuing things and living for things of the world, even if we're living for the things of the world and looking for it in him. If it's anything else but him, he's not going to allow us just to have everything go perfectly in our lives. And so I don't think it should surprise any one of us if our relationships grow a conflict when we let our love for things of the world grow in us. It shouldn't surprise us when we let those love for things of the world stir up in us and kind of overtake everything and be our focus. It shouldn't surprise us if that is happening that our relationships start to go uh, down the wrong paths and experience conflict. It only makes sense that conflict would begin within. Internal conflict with sinful desires, and then we give in to those, and we act selfishly, which is not good for relationships, and then we're likely to hurt each other, or at the very least, overlook each other's needs in search of fulfillment of our own needs. And then not only that, God's not going to come behind and just smooth over everything in our relational issues for us, just to try to keep us happy or satisfied um, in, our, in our earthly desires. You know, and just because things seem to be like all is well, it doesn't mean that God is like looking on and saying, hey, everything's perfect. There may be coming a time where there's going to be conflict if you're living for the things of the world. And so what is the answer to this? Conflict is going to begin within. Where's, where's the answer? Well, resolution begins with humility. 
That's the second point. Resolution to conflict begins with humility. And here's the thing. I don't want to I don't want it to seem like I'm blaming you guys for any conflict that you're facing. We just talked about conflict beginning within, begins with our sinful desires, and oh, we're giving in all these sinful desires, and so, oh, that's why we're having all these relational problems. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. It may not be on you. It very well may be that all the conflict in your life right now is the result of other people's sin. That is possible. And if that's the case for you right now, I'm sorry that that's where you're at. That really stinks that you're dealing with the consequences of other people's sin in your relationships. We live in this in-between state, you know, where we're saved, that we know God, and we can find satisfaction and fulfillment in Him, but yet we still live in this broken world with problems and with other sinful people and sinful hearts of our own. We kind of live in this in-between, this tension of like, we're going to deal with stuff. So don't hear me saying that, that you're the problem. You might be. You might, you might be, at least in some situations in your life, if there's conflict, you might be the problem, or at least part of the problem. Do hear me say, even if the conflict you face is primarily or even entirely on somebody else, there's still something we're called to do. There's a way that we're called to be, and it's going to take humility before the Lord. Whether you're the one causing the problems, whether it's your sin that's causing the rifts or not, you know, you have sin. And you have these desires, and we're going to have to approach the Lord in humility. And the temptation to entirely blame shift your current relationship issues onto other people can actually become a snare for you. That can become sin for you. So we've got to watch ourselves. And, we, and no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum of this is not at all my fault to this is completely my fault, no matter where you are on that spectrum, humility before God and others is going to be required. So we get into this. We look at verses 6 through 10. You know, verses 6 through 10, he says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. More than what? More than we deserve. More than what's necessary to resolve whatever's going on in your life. For sure. And actually, here's what the text literally reads. If you were to read it in the original language, it literally reads like this. Greater, however, is the grace he gives. Greater, however, is the grace he gives. No matter what situation you find yourself in, you may not even know uh, if you're saved at this point. You might be in this room and you're like, hey, I don't, I'm not even sure. I might be the problem in everything because I don't even know if I know God or have a relationship with him. No matter where you stand right now in relation to God and faith, you may have messed everything up. Somebody else may have messed everything up for you. But for every single one of us, no matter where you are in, in dealing with these warring desires and thoughts and feelings in your heart, over what you've done or what somebody else has done, over what may be lacking in there, I want you to know that greater, however, is the grace he gives. Greater than all these things is the grace he gives. And that'll preach. And here's how you receive that. Humility. The difference between pride and humility. He gets onto this here. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit yourselves. So basically what he's saying is like, hey, God is going to oppose the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, so be humble. And, and the difference here is interesting, and this is going to sound really technical for me to do this, but I think it's helpful. The word for proud means to shine over. To shine over, and it's, I don't know, I'm going to butcher the Greek pronouncement of this word, but it's huperethenois or whatever. But here's the, here's the main part I want you to know. 
Yeah, thank, thank you. I appreciate that. I did take Greek, but it was a long time ago, like a bunch, a bunch of years. The point I want you to notice is the, the hyper, the hooper at the beginning. It's a, it's a prefix, okay, and it means above, okay, above or over. The word for submit yourselves, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It literally means to place yourself under. And the prefix for that is hupo. So, uh, huper, hupo, above or over, and then under. And what he's saying is, like literally the difference is that the proud put themselves over others. The humble put themselves under God. The proud put themselves over others. The humble put themselves under God. Comparing yourself with other people is always going to rob you. It's always going to rob you. It either results in despising something about yourself and envying something in somebody else, or it makes you proud and self-centered and puffed up, looking down on others. Notice he doesn't say place yourself under others. He says place yourself under God. Submit yourself to God. If you're going to compare yourself to any standard, look to God's standard. And for every single one of us looking to God's standard, we're going to understand we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. So we look to God and we submit ourselves to him. And when we find him as we draw near, because that's this next part. He's talking about submitting yourselves. And then the next verse he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we draw near to him, you know what happens? For one, the devil has no hold on you. He says that, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Whatever power he wielded over you is gone. He loses it when you draw near to God. Not only that, but we're overwhelmed by him. His beauty, his grace, his holiness leads us to repentance. It leads us to repentance. That's where we get this like, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, double-minded, be wretched and mourn. Being overwhelmed at, at our own sinfulness before the Lord. You know, it's saying this, if there's anything in me, oh God, that is contrary to your will, I give it to you. I lay it all down. I submit myself to you, God. I put myself under you. And when we mourn over our sin, when we do this, when we mourn over our own sin, we're going to have a hard time playing judge over others. It, they don't work in tandem. You can't be putting yourself over others and submitting yourself under God. They don't work together. And so you're going to have a hard time judging other people. And that's what these last two verses of our text are about. Verse 11 and verse 12. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. And it's talking about this judge, like, don't set yourself up as the judge. There's only one judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We can't play the role of judge if we're well-versed in our own shortcomings. You know, this doesn't mean that we neglect or just try to overlook the missteps of our brothers and sisters, though. There's plenty of scripture where it calls us to call one another out, to bring a brother or sister in Christ back from their sin. Somebody's struggling with something spiritual. It's Galatians 6, 1. James 5. Speaking of going after our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, not setting yourself up as judge doesn't mean you can't recognize the wrong that somebody else has done. Especially a wrong that's caused conflict between you and them. You can still recognize that. You ought to recognize that. We've got to think through how do we handle that. If I'm not the judge who can, who can judge this person who has wronged me, then how should I handle it? And here's where that humility piece is really going to be required. If you're the one that's been wronged, or your world has been rocked by somebody else's sin, it's going to require some serious humility. 
And it looks like, this, this whole thing, this approach that looks like approaching that person in humility. Not submitting yourselves to them, submitting yourselves to God. And approaching them in humility before God. Desiring that the wrong be righted and seeking that person's greatest good, which is their growth in relationship with Christ. So to consider how that's meant to play out, I want us to look at something Jesus said in Matthew. So we're stepping away from James for a minute, and we're going to go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 22. This is what he says. This is what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Essentially saying, all the times. You know, it'd be awesome if when people did something wrong against you, they actually owned up to that and asked for forgiveness. Wouldn't that be awesome? It'd be amazing. It would make relationships so much easier. Like, I do something wrong against you, I immediately apologize. Oh, I recognize I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? That'd be awesome. But in real life, we don't have parents being the police, like you and your siblings. Like, you better go and apologize. Say, say you're sorry. You know, hug it out. It doesn't happen in real life. Sometimes people do things against us, and, and they just don't, they don't even recognize it hardly. They may harm you or, or, say, or do something against you that works against you and your relationship, and they may not even realize it was harmful. They may realize it's harmful, and they don't care. But either way, here are the steps that we're called to take. He says, for one, go to the person. Go to the person with it. Somebody's done something against you that's caused a rift in your relationship. At least you believe that that is what's happened. You need to go to them. You know, we tend to talk about the person rather than go to the person. That's our tendency. It's much easier for me to go over here and talk to my friends about the thing that this person did or this person said that I don't like or this thing that's caused a rift in our relationship or caused me to lack respect to this person. I'm going to go over here and talk about it. But what he says, verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ in a lot of these situations. You know, you do, you do life alongside a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes they cause rifts in your relationship by something they do or an attitude they have or something they say. We're not supposed to go over here and talk about our brother and sister in Christ. Rather, we're to go to them. And it may be that when you actually go directly to somebody and talk and communicate, you might realize that there was a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of motive. Or, or maybe they really did do something and they need to know about it because they've just glazed over it and didn't even realize what they did. It may be that they know exactly what they did. But they need you to come talk to them about that because maybe they haven't uh, repented themselves at this point. And you can come and be the voice of reason and accountability in their life to say, look, you're doing this and it's causing a rift in our relationship or causing a rift in this other relationship or this group of friends and calling them out for that might be the thing that exactly they need in their relationship with Christ in order to grow in Christ. 
where you could have gone over here and talked about it with other people. Instead, if you go directly to this person, maybe you win that person back from sin. You maybe win that relationship back from that rift that's there. And the hope is that any tension that's there can be resolved one-on-one. But if it can't, he says step two, take somebody with you. Take somebody with you. Include another believer in the conversation. Jesus said, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And I think this means that God is at work when two believers approach a fellow believer to confront about sin. I think it means that God is there and present and at work when two believers will go to a fellow believer and call them out for their sin. God may be present in that way, in a way he's not in other times even. He says with two or three are gathered, in, especially in a situation like this, this is the context of that verse. We've heard that verse talked about with worship all our lives probably. Where two or three are gathered, you know, we're here for this worship service, God is here. Yeah, he is. But in this context, where two or three are gathered in talking to one another about their sin, like talking to a, a brother or sister in Christ about their sin, I am there among them. I think this is a way that we can be super effective in helping our brother or sister in Christ come back in or repent of sin. That this, this opportunity, if someone is actually a believer, if it, if it goes beyond just you and them having a conversation, that doesn't really work, doesn't fix things, doesn't, they don't, they're not repentant, they're not humble even to have that conversation, bringing another person along, I think if they're actually a believer, this is the step that will get them. This is the step that will help that conversation if they're a believer. Step three, though, is to get the church involved. Bringing in uh, somebody from the church, an authority from the church, or even bringing before the church, this is what we call church discipline. Having somebody come up and say, look, this is, this is, what, this is what the sin is. This is how it's called us to riff in the relationship. Uh, you know, we've, we've approached this brother or sister in Christ about this thing, and they, they will not repent. To bring it to the church, if they still won't repent, he says, treat them as an unbeliever or a tax collector. The goal of all this is to try to help this person walk well with Christ. Even the church discipline step. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 that you should hand somebody over to the devil if they will not repent of their sin. In this case, in particular, it was a sexual immorality thing in the church. And he said, hand them over to the devil, cast them out of the church in hopes that their flesh will be destroyed and their soul will be saved. That's, that's bold. But the goal is that we want to help each other grow in Christ. And you may find out along the way in this process that the person's not a believer. You might go to them and be like, hey, you did this thing. I feel like this is not right. We're brothers, brothers, sister Christ, whatever. And you're trying to explain this, and you may find out along the way in the process they're not a believer. They may not respond with humility before the Lord, and they may refuse to reconcile. And if it turns out that they're not a believer, what do you do? Well, what would you do with any unbeliever? How would you approach any unbeliever? Point them to Christ. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Man, seek to overcome evil with good. That was in our passage last week, or two weeks ago in hopes, in all these things, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We want them to see Christ. And this takes humility, a lot of humility before the Lord. And we've said a lot of things. If, if you've gotten any attention span left, let me summarize this with three application things. Okay, three really simple things to help prepare you for whatever conflicts you're going to face or are facing right now. One, search yourself first. 
Search yourself first. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 says, Judge not that you not, be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying there's not a speck there. He's saying take the log out of your own first, then deal with the speck. Have I done anything at all to contribute to this conflict? That's what you got to ask yourself. Is there any sin that I'm consistently walking in right now that's going to hinder our relationship and how I handle this situation? And then in searching yourself, you may find that you have been wrong with someone. Maybe in this moment, you know, I've been wrong, I've wronged somebody with my words or my attitudes or my actions. You may come across this and be, in searching yourself, may need to go and confess it to them and seek reconciliation. If that is you, here's a verse for you. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. It says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your, offer your gift. So your worship is hindered if, you have some, if there's something that you know that somebody else has against you and you're not dealing with it. Go deal with that first. Man, there's a sense of urgency to that. So there, there it is. Search yourself first. Second thing, be willing to forgive. This one's pretty simple. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, after Jesus finished telling them the, the Lord's Prayer, hey, this is the way you should pray. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you are unwilling to forgive, you must have forgotten how much you have been forgiven. When you stop for a second and you, it's that, that, that piece of humbling yourself before the Lord and seeing his holiness and seeing his beauty and his love for you, and it ought to break you of your own sin. And when you're broken of your own sin, you're going to have a hard time judging these other people and saying, I won't forgive you because you recognize how much God has forgiven you. So be willing to forgive. A third thing, aim for reconciliation. Aim for it. It may not always be perfectly possible, but you want to do everything in your power to aim for reconciliation in that relationship. James 3, 17 and 18. This is what comes right between what we read earlier in James 3 and our passage tonight. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, ins- and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The goal ultimately in conflict, particularly between brothers and sisters in Christ, is reconciliation. It should be our goal when we do anything we do that we want to live at peace with all. Two weeks ago we read in Romans 12, 17 and 18, it says, repay no one, for e- no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we want to aim for this. Do our best in every situation, every conflict, to aim for reconciliation. But you know what reconciliation doesn't mean? A willingness to forgive and an attempt to live at peace with all does not mean trusting everyone fully. Or trusting everyone the same. Or subjecting yourself to everyone. No, our humility is before the Lord. Our trust is in the Lord. And what he calls us to do is love our neighbor. It's going to look different. We trust the Lord. We love our neighbor. Relationships don't have to go back to pre-you-hurt-me status. They don't have to for reconciliation to happen. What it simply simply is is a right standing, nothing held against you 
I'm not going to go behind your back now and talk to other people about the thing that you did to me back when, or the thing you said about me back when, or the thing that you did that hindered our, our friend group, or whatever. I'm not going to go around talking about this. I hold nothing against you. It's a conscious decision on our part to say, I'm not going to hold this against you. I forgive you, and I will continue to, to be in that place of I forgive you. You know, wisdom would tell you not to approach that relationship the exact same way as before. You can still love your neighbor and not be in the exact same type of relationship that you had with them before the conflict. Here's the thing. No matter what you do, in every instance, in every relationship, in every conflict, we want to honor Christ well. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. That's who we want to be. That's who we are. We are sons of God, so we ought to be peacemakers. The thing that often starts our conflict, that self-centeredness, is often the thing that keeps us from resolving those conflicts. Can we, just for the sake of God's glory, set aside ourselves and find that Jesus really is everything that we need? And when we find that we have everything we need in him, it makes it so much simpler to do conflict right. 